In the past two decades, several life-threatening viruses have been identified for the first time, and others have spread to new regions, in part because of ecologic and sociologic changes. Predicting the next outbreak and responding in a timely, coordinated manner remain important challenges. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Jeremy Farrer, Director of the Wellcome Trust. Dr. Farrer has written a perspective article about strategies for improving epidemic preparedness in this rapidly changing world. Dr. Farr, you write in your article that Bangladesh has seen an outbreak of Nipah virus almost every year since 2001, but there are still questions about how the virus crossed India to spark an epidemic last year. Can you tell us a bit about that epidemic and why it's important for our thinking about the spread of disease in the 21st century? Nipah was first reported in the last part of the 20th century in Malaysia and, and caused a very significant outbreak, which then came to an end in Malaysia. But then the virus caused further outbreaks in Bangladesh. And then in 2018, a seemingly unconnected outbreak in southern India, some thousands of miles from Bangladesh. I think what this tells us is just how ecology is changing, environments are changing, and how we can expect epidemics, re-emerging infections or new infections to appear in unexpected places far removed from their original source. And we have to both be prepared for those things we know about and for those things that we cannot predict as the environment changes, societies change, and the risks and threats that we face change. The World Health Organization has developed a list of priority infectious diseases, what it calls the blueprint for research and development. How did it select those particular diseases, and how are we going to use the blueprint going forward? So I think the WHO on this regard, the blueprint, have done a fantastic job to provide a list. And of course, some things are not on there, influenza, for instance. But these were selected for very clear reasons, that there was a risk and a threat to the world from these diseases, that they'd been in some ways neglected. We did not have a complete set of countermeasures against them, whether that be understanding of the societal influence or diagnostics or treatment or vaccines. So that there were gaps in our knowledge and there were gaps in our ability to respond to these outbreaks, all of which could cause national, regional or international epidemics of major concern. So it was a very exhaustive approach and a very deliberate approach to try and give the world a set of uh, diseases we believe to be threats to the world for which we are vulnerable because of our lack of those countermeasures and to encourage scientists, commercial enterprises, philanthropy, government to actually bring some focus to these diseases so that we do have what we needed to both prevent and deal with epidemics as they may arise. So one of the diseases on the WHO list is called disease X. So how does highlighting an infection that has yet to be identified help the global community prepare for a future threat? So disease X is a disease which we, yes, as you say, we do not yet know about. We've had a number of those in the last uh, 20 years, just this century. If we think of SARS, if we think of the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, another coronavirus, and indeed in the last century, HIV was that ill. And what I think we're, we're trying to say with disease X is let's prepare for those things we know about, which may reemerge, but let us also think about how we would deal with something we do not know about Technology is advancing very fast, and my prediction would be in the next 10 years or so, we'll have the capacity to produce the countermeasures that we need, diagnostics, drugs, vaccines, even for diseases as they become completely new for the first time ever. And I think we have to harness those technologies. Those technologies will be helpful for the things we know about, as well as the things that we don't know about that will emerge for the first time. And I think we need to be able to get to that point of having those critical public health interventions, vaccines or treatment, diagnostics, 
in place within days and weeks rather than within months and years because a fast-moving respiratory pathogen, for instance, could be all around the world within a, a matter of days and we need to have the capacity to respond to that to those we know and critically also to those that we don't know. You talk in your article about several changes that are driving these new patterns of viral emergence and spread, among them climate change and urbanization. Can you elaborate on the role those factors have played in recent epidemics? Yes, so climate change, and, and I'd, I'd perhaps broaden it to both uh, climate change, environmental change, land use change, ecology, and uh, biodiversity. These are all changing the relationship between particularly the animal sector and humans. And many emerging infections are, of course, zoonotic. They come from the animal kingdom and they, they come across, across the species barrier into humans. That was true of HIV, it's true of SARS, it's true of MERS, and it's true of a number of other infections. Indeed, Ebola is like that as well. And as, as the environment changes, driven by climate change, ecological change, then those relationships between humans and animals change and animals might move and migrate into more urban centers. Humans looking for food or for substance might go deeper into forests and come more into contact with animals from which viruses in particular can spread across. So the changing environment is having a, a, a very major impact on the way infections emerge and then spread. Then urbanization, which is the big sociological change really of the 21st century, is going to drive those infections into highly dense, highly populated populations who are also very mobile. Urban populations are obviously very connected, both within a country and between countries and between continents. And so you have this coming together of environment, climate change, biodiversity change, ecological change, and then sociological change in the human populations, very dense, very deep urban centers where infections can spread very quickly. And indeed, that was what uh, drove the epidemic of Ebola in 2014-2016, the urban transmission of the Ebola virus. And then looking at response, you point out in your article that there are no clear definitions of the relationships among countries, the WHO, and organizations involved in epidemic preparedness. So what would an ideal model of coordination look like to you? Well, I, I do believe that the WHO is central to this. And actually, the reforms of the last few years that came out of the challenge of Ebola 2014-16 uh, drove many of those reforms. And I think it's crucial that we now, as a world, get behind the WHO as the coordinator of the epidemic response. They cannot do everything alone but they are the one point of the global public health architecture which, which has this mandate and has this responsibility and which represents the member states, all of which come together in the World Health Organization. So I do think the WHO has to be the centerpiece of this coordination. They cannot do this alone. Uh, there's not the capacity and nor should there be within WHO. I believe they need to be the conductor of the orchestra rather than the orchestra as well. The orchestra itself needs to come from the invaluable support and contribution that organizations such as the United States Center for Disease Control plays. Absolutely critical role in world global public health, which we should all applaud. But increasingly also from Medicine Sans Frontieres, Doctors Without Borders, increasingly from the African Center for Disease Control, which is just getting established now in Africa and will play an absolutely critical role. The Chinese CDC increasingly playing a, a very constructive role, European CDC and, and others, Public Health England, philanthropy, industry, and not just the pharma industry, but also the logistics and insurance industry, which really need to come together, and the travel industry, uh, all have got critical roles to play. But somebody respected, 
with the mandate needs to conduct that complex orchestra and be respected for doing that and occasionally make the tough calls that are required in order to be that leader and, and conductor. And I believe that needs to be the World Health Organization reformed and continuing to evolve, but nevertheless given that leadership role and then respected in delivering that and, and then having the capacity to provide that leadership function. And how do you, how do you pay for that orchestra? What about the funding challenges? The funding challenges are enormous because obviously there's enormous interest and funding when there is an epidemic. And in 2015 and 16, the world should take credit for the flow of money and resources and people that came into West Africa. But when that epidemic finishes, often the interest wanes. You know, I saw this very close up with SARS and and with bird flu in Southeast Asia. And of course, we we saw that in the post-Ebola era in, in West Africa. And at the heart of all of this, ultimately, comes to robust, sustained, long-term commitments to universal health coverage and to strong public health systems within countries that are then linked and networked through regional and or continental African CDC, for instance, for the African region, so that they have the capacity of the universal health coverage, the public health system within a country, and then they have the ability to call on regional or international resources when they're needed. That needs sustained investment over long periods of time to develop that system rather than huge influxes of funding and then and then falling and then rising and falling we'd be much better with a long-term sustained uh, enhancing of primary care universal health coverage and strong and robust public health systems with the surge capacity to re- respond to these epidemics when they inevitably occur thank you dr farr great pleasure thank you very much indeed